Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we share conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice for your medical practice through this podcast series. In this episode, we're talking with expert rheumatologist Dr. Andrew Teichtel about investigations of rheumatology, what's helpful and what's not. A clinician faced with a patient complaining of myalgias and generalised rheumatic aches may be tempted to order a host of immunologic and inflammatory tests whilst also keeping an open mind and assessing that patient for the many differential diagnoses such patients present. The ANA is commonly ordered, but it is found in 25 to 30% of our normal population in low teeters and in 5% at teeters of 1 in 160 without disease. The anti-double-stranded DNA is more specific for a variety of rheumatological disorders but some staining patterns, such as the nuclear dense fine speckle pattern, may occur in healthy, undiseased individuals. 80% of patients with rheumatoid have a positive rheumatoid factor, but the test may take some years to become positive, indicating low sensitivity in the early stages of disease, and may be positive in other inflammatory disorders, such as Sjogren's syndrome, infections, particularly bacterial or chronic viral infections, such as viral hepatitis, and hematological disorders, such as cryoglobulinemia, and some plasma cell disorders, indicating a lower specificity, whereas antibodies to citrullated peptides interrogated by the test CCP are as sensitive as rheumatoid factor, but more specific, 94% versus 79%, and thus preferred. Now, fortunately, we have Dr. Andrew Teichtel to frame this conversation into a logical process, and are honoured to invite him back as a guest on Everyday Medicine. Please welcome Andrew Teichtel. Andrew, title, thank you very much for joining me again uh, to discuss uh, investigations in rheumatology on everyday medicine. It's very kind of you to, again, take the time to have a chat with me. We very much enjoy the discussion about um, biologics and small molecules and what's new in rheumatology. Um, we've got uh, another interesting sort of discussion here about uh, investigations of rheumatology. Uh, GPs are often faced with patients who've got myalgias and general aches and pains, and they're perhaps not sure if this patient's got sort of fibromyalgia or a... Uh, whether, whether their their symptoms are reflecting a mental illness or whether they truly have a rheumatological problem. And I'm sure they do a lot of testing uh, before they send the patients to you. Um, I suspect some of those tests are helpful, some are not. Take me through, what, what are the sort of tests that are helpful for you when patients are being referred with rheumatological-type symptoms? And what's, what's perhaps not worth, um, you know, adding into that panel of tests? Take me through it. Thanks, Luke. I, I think the most important thing when ordering tests is the clinical context. So um, there are a lot of rheumatological tests to pick from. I think that um, it's not, not just a reflection on GPs, but it's a reflection on other subspecialists and, and everyone else there. They're not well understood tests by people who aren't rheumatologists. Um, and that's no disrespect to anyone. I just think that's that's the truth. Um, and the clinical context is really everything because you do need to obviously take a good history, work out what's happening to guide your investigations, and that's every aspect of medicine. The second caveat, the caveat to that as well is to understand the tests because every test in rheumatology really comes back, I, I believe, to two principles, which is what's the sensitivity and what's the specificity. Mm. Um, so, you know, just to, to give a a little bit of a background on that. The, the sensitivity of a test basically 
talks about whether you can rule a condition out because a test with high sensitivity rules something out if it is negative. Mm. So, for instance, um, if you're questioning whether a patient has lupus because they've got some rashes and myalgias and, um, you know, they they complain of some dry eyes and dry mouth, I, I think you could sample half the population and they will say yes to that. And if you look at that test in isolation and you, you perform an ANA, if the ANA is negative because it's a very sensitive test, you've in essence ruled out lupus. Hmm. If the test hmm. is positive, it doesn't mean the patient has lupus, but you are starting to have a potential um, line of investigation thereafter if you truly think that the clinical context fits. Um, that's opposed to a very specific test. So, again, coming back to lupus, a, a specific test, if positive, basically rules a condition in if, um, if, if it's apparent and the clinical context is apparent. So if you think a patient has lupus and they're ANA positive and you perform a double-stranded DNA and that test is positive, then that's a very specific test. So it means that you're very likely dealing with a patient who has lupus. Mm. The contrary, however, is if the double-stranded DNA was negative, that does not mean the patient does not have lupus. It just means that the double-stranded DNA is not currently elevated because double-stranded DNA is a marker of disease activity. So I always say to a patient, rightly or wrongly, if they've got a strongly positive ANA and it's, you know, 1280 and they come in with some symptoms, if their double-stranded DNA is not not elevated, if their complements are not reduced, if there's no other cytopenias or anything else going on, I'll often say to them as they leave the room, I don't think you have lupus, but I can't look you in the eye and say for sure you don't have lupus. But what I can say to you is if you have lupus, it doesn't look to be very active on the blood tests. Yes. Um, yes. And I think that's a very safe statement to make to patients and it probably validates the way they feel. Now, they may have fibromyalgia, for all I know, but I've also not um, ignored the test because they put a lot of um, credence on this test. So yeah. um, I think just using that as an example to come back to you to answer your question, it is dependent upon the clinical context and dependent upon how you use the test in terms of its sensitivity and specificity. Um, is it useful to you, Andrew, to have a, a panel of tests already sort of laid out by the general practitioners? Because they, they may have done the ANA, which, and I suspect they're referring to you because the ANA is quite positive, quite highly positive, so there's a high teeter of that. Um, do, do you like, would you like to see the double-stranded DNA added into that and the ENA and ESR yeah. and complements? So, like, is that helpful for you to have all those things laid out? Yeah, very much so. I mean, if you were if you were sitting in an exam right now and you said to someone their ANA is positive, what to now? The answer would be, well, double-stranded DNA, ANA, C34s and what have you. But yes. um, I think it's best just to, you're sending the patient off for a bleed. You might as well just add that if you've got a clinical suspicion. Yeah. Um, if your ANA was negative, well, yes, you have wasted the double-stranded DNA and a complement level more than likely. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think that should come into the, the GP's sort of mind when they're ordering tests. Um, I think what should come into their mind is, do I believe this person may have lupus? And, and, and it, you know, we'll often get a referral, for instance, for back pain with a positive ANA. Now, 
the positive ANA is completely inconsequential to someone with back pain because we don't see lupus causing back pain. That'll either be a spondyloarthropathy, mechanical, non-specific sort of back pain. So um, the clinical context is the major determinant of what tests you should be ordering, obviously. That's very helpful. What would be the most common, I don't want to say error necessarily, but, you know, so a situation where someone's referred to and you, you might look at that referral and say, oh, no, look, it's not... This is not really a, a major rheumatological issue. Is there, but something's prompted the GP to send the patient to you. Is, is there like a, a scenario that you can imagine? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the most common one I think I would see is a rheumatoid factor with arthrologists and, and the patient coming in saying, I've got rheumatoid doc. Now, yes. you know, again, it comes back to clinical context. Is this an inflammatory history? Is there early morning pain and stiffness? Is it symmetrical polyarthropathy? Um, is there synovitis clinically? And then it comes back to, again, my, my second point is know your sensitivity and specificity of the test because a rheumatoid factor is neither sensitive nor specific. So rheumatoid factors can go up in any number of conditions and having a positive rheumatoid factor does not equal a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Having an anti-CCP antibody, on the other hand, which is a very specific test, really puts that more, more to the forefront of your mind. But I would get a lot of referrals um, where you have to undo some of the beliefs the patient has already conjured up because they've got a rheumatoid factor and their knees are sore, but they're also 65, have been a mechanic, have worn out knee joints and really just need consideration of weight loss or surgical intervention for their knee osteoarthritis and their rheumatoid factor is an absolute red herring. Yeah, that's very helpful too. To, with the uh, with the nuclear staining patterns, uh, I remember as a medical student and physician training having to go through all those staining patterns, is that something that interests you, particularly as a rheumatologist, whether they've, they've got, um, you know, uh, sort of like uh, I'm trying to think of various patterns that they might have a nuclear coarse pattern or a nuclear homogeneous pattern, for example. That uh, is that something that you tend to take a lot of notice of, or or not so much? No, I definitely do. Uh, I think there's two two things that we ask ourselves. One is what is the titer? Because yes, um, the, way, the way an ANA is looked at is really a dilutional factor down a microscope. So. The difference between 640 and 1280 is the operator having a bit of fuzzy vision at the time. So um, when you look down a microscope and you see that the ANA is apparent at 640 and you drop a dilutional factor down and it's, it's, it's not apparent anymore, well, it's, it's just the user variability. So there's not a lot of difference between 640, 1280 and 1280 and 2560 is the next dilutional factor. Um, but there is a huge difference between, you know, 1280 and maybe 320 because there's a couple of dilutional factors down the track. So the first thing I look at is, is the titer looking quite real? If it's a 160 or an 80, it may not mean that much. Uh, not all. It may mean much in the clinical context, but if it's a fairly sort of um, equivocal story and it's a low positive ANA, I don't tend to get too excited. Um the second thing is what is the pattern that you're alluding to? So there's a multitude of patterns we look at. So homogenous, for instance, is often synonymous with lupus, whereas a speckled pattern may be more synonymous with Sjogren's or a mixed connective tissue disease. Um, nucleolar patterns and centromere patterns are much more um, specific for systemic sclerosis. So uh, the centromere pattern in limited and the nucleolar pattern 
um, more exclusive to um, diffuse spirodermis. So we do look at the pattern because it will also um, factor in my line of questioning during a consultation because in a speckled pattern, I, I really do want to know if they have sicker symptoms. I do want to know if they're a bit more photosensitive. I do want to know um, if they've had a lot of dental fillings or if they've had paratitis or anything along the lines, because I really am thinking, well, does this person have Sjogren's? Mm. Um, and of course the ENAs will help me as well. Um, but yes, the pattern does matter and the pattern does direct my line of questioning. Gee, you're making me excited about being a rheumatologist here, Andrew. That sounds... You can always jump, you can jump ship. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating. What about a radiological workup before patients are sent to you? Is that helpful or not necessarily so? Not, not a lot. I, I mean, look, it's always helpful if there's some knee pain to have a knee x-rays, their osteoarthritis. But one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand is if you are truly looking for synovitis, um, and you can do ultrasounds, although there's operator dependence, and I, I'm not a huge fan of ultrasound, but I order a hell of a lot of MRIs, and I make no apologies about that. And with the MRIs, I, I get most of the scans done with gadolinium because it's very, very, very sensitive for picking up synovitis. So um, rather than probably have these tests done, I, I can, you know, countless times I've sent patients back because they've had a non-contrast MRI that's basically said there's nothing happening. But when you send them back for a contrast MRI, all of a sudden the synovitis starts showing up. Um, so I think... It's a little bit like, um, you know, myself when I send someone to an orthopaedic surgeon, I might have done an x-ray, but I haven't done full leg length views that mm. they're going to want, mm. whatever. Sometimes it's better just to, you know, let, let the specialist order the correct radiology. Mm. Mm. It's, well, it's the same with sacroiliac joints. You know, a lot of the times we won't get the correct views for a sacroiliac joint, so you have to send the patient back. And, you know, that's time, that's money, that's radiation potentially for some patients. So. Um, yeah, I, th I think I think the bloods always help us. A good clinical history helps us, but we're we're very happy to order the radiology, and of course, we get we often get a bulk build for the patients too, which is a bonus for them. Yes, yes, that's nice. The radiology department as well to look after patients like that. With the sacroiliac joint uh, evaluation, what's what's your go to there? What sort of X ray are you ordering for that? Yeah, so often an oblique view of the sacroiliac joints is the correct radiographic view. Um, but, you know, the world of uh, ankylosing spondylitis has changed too because we have radiographic um, ankylosing spondylitis, meaning you can pick it up on an X-ray. And now we have non-radiographic axial spondyloarthropathy, which basically is a big term for do they have sacroiliitis on the MR? So is there T2-weighted changes? Is there marrow edema around the both sides of the SIJ? So, um so it really depends what you're looking for. So you may want to start with an X-ray, an oblique view of the sacroiliac joints, but a negative um, X-ray does not necessarily, to me, mean the patient does not have a spondyloarthropathy. Okay. Andrew, I'm excited about rheumatology, uh, hearing you discuss it like this. Uh, tell me, what what did draw, draw you into rheumatology? I'm sure you, 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 you were, the door was open to any specialty for you. Why did you move into rheumatology? What was it that drew you there? Yeah, it's a question I often ask myself because at the end of the day, I, I, I grew up wanting to potentially do cardiology and, you know, it, it hit me doing the cardiology rotations where 
you sort of think to yourself, geez, you know, it would be exciting to get up and, you know, go to the cath lab and save someone's life by, you know, getting a STEMI sorted. But I also thought to myself, is that going to be the life I want when I'm 50? You know, getting out of bed with the kids are, are young and you're going to drive them to school the next day and you want to be around on the weekend. So there is a lifestyle decision and there's a, there's a lifestyle choice in rheumatology. We rarely have to get out of bed in the middle of the night. Um, I don't think I actually ever have had to get out of bed in the middle of the night. Um, so that's a big yeah, plus. Plus, and also, you know, the era I, I started just as the biologics were taking off. You know, we had a few biologics, and you know, it, it really was. You know, you go to the grand rounds as an intern and a resident, and you think, oh wow, you know, these people are then these must be good because these older guys with grey hair are really excited about this. So you, know, <laughs> you sort yeah. of could smell that, that that rheumatology was on the brink of something as as I was sort of growing up in my medical training. So that was that was a major reason. And I actually was a physiotherapist before I did medicine. So the musculoskeletal component um, interested me as well. So I thought I had something to add there to patient care. I think, so, you know, if you were talking to a young resident or a, a registrar who wasn't quite sure where they were heading, they were in the physician training program, what, what would you advise them about rheumatology? What would be your advice to them? I would, I think the first thing I would say is try and get a rheumatology rotation in your training and see if you like it. I, I think the most important thing for, for young um, doctors is to exclude what they don't want to do. Um, and then I think they should also make a lifestyle choice as well because whilst it's, you know, sexy and I think cardiology is great, ask yourself, do you want that lifestyle? Um, you know, I, I think it, it takes a certain kind of person and you have to sort of be true to yourself and say, well, is that the future you want for yourself? Because life, medicine is very important to all of us. We're obviously here because it's important. But um, you do want to have some balance in life. I'm not sure I've achieved that, but <laughs> you do want to have some balance in life. You're too popular, Andrew. Well, I, I think I think it's hard because you start up a business and you you see it grow and you sort of think of of it as your own little baby too. So um, you do get very heavily invested in it, um, and it's nice. It's nice to help people, but at the end of the day, to a young junior doctor, is dip your toes in it. See how you like it as a resident. See. See how happy the consultants are. I, I've found most rheumatologists yeah. pretty happy. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and I think if you've got some consultants who are always yelling and miserable at you, it's not necessarily a reflection of you. It's and a reflection of them and the pressures they're under and the lifestyle they lead. And, you know, look for happiness. Look for happiness in your consultants because I think we're a pretty happy bunch. And it's a long career, isn't it? Oh, I, that's great advice, Andrew. Well, Andrew, look, I'd like to thank you very much again and uh, and congratulations on your upcoming um, second child and uh, I hope you can find some time off to, to enjoy that and uh, I look forward to maybe touching base professionally again with you very soon. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Luke. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. a real pleasure to invite Andrew to the conversation today and I hope you enjoyed that podcast discussion as much as I did. It really did help to resolve several issues in my mind about how to best structure investigations in rheumatology. And during the podcast series we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. 
requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and maybe email to manager at gihealth.com.au.